We're going. Hello. Judy's terrified. <laughs> How are you going? Who are you, Judy? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> we start um, straight away. There's no let's, intro, no let's... beating around the bush. Right. So I am Judy, Dr. Judy Blaine. Mm-hmm. I'm also Mrs. Judy Stevenson. Um, uh, who am I? <laughs> this interesting question because what I am is mostly um, interrelated to other people. So I'm a mother. I'm a daughter. Um, I'm a sister. And so most of what I am is because of others. But I am Judy Blaine, first and foremost. Um, and I'm South African born and an expatriate living in Hong Kong, having lived this is, oh, 25 and a half years now. Wow. I'm also do sports. I'm a triathlete. Um, I find that always quite difficult to say because I do triathlons rather than being a triathlete. But I'm now learning to say that I am a triathlete. Mm. Um, I'm also a doctor in psychology. And that is who I am in a nutshell. That was very beautifully put. (laughs) Where would you like to start in unpacking who you are a little bit further? Do you want to start more on the sports side or would you like to go into your doctor of psychology? Um, Oh, either. I think probably let's start with the academic. Let's start with the cognitive, shall we? So how did we get there? Yeah, the journey. It's an interesting one. When I was, um, I'm a nursing sister by qualification. Um, And when I was doing my nursing training, I was fascinated by the sociology aspect. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs just really resonated with me. And I remember my friend saying, why are you so fascinated with this Maslow's hierarchy of needs? And I'm like, you know, I don't know, but it just resonates. Anyway, nursing happened. Midwifery, I also finished my midwifery qualification. And um, psychology just always really interested me. And so when Kirsty was born, my eldest, who's now 21, um, I thought, what am I going to do? I did work in between and nursing and other things, which I'll, I'll get into um, later. But I thought, what am I going to do? Now's a great time to start studying psychology. So I'd started doing my undergrad then. When Kirsty was born? Yeah, oh, <laughs> she wow. was four months old. Oh, my gosh. And because one of the main reasons, I wanted to keep my brain active. You know, you have children and they... It's fantastic. They're all absorbing. And I couldn't imagine myself just talking about nappies and things, you know, all the time. So I just wanted something for me. Um, But I never wanted it to take away from the children. So I started doing this through Open University UK. And those days, there was no email or anything like that. You literally had to post your things backwards and forwards or fax them, um, your assignments. And you got these loads of books being shipped over and stuff. Anyway, it was really great, I'd, and I just did one course a year um, so that I could, you know, carry on being a mum. And then hot on the heels came Sarah and then Rachel. And when I was pregnant with Rach, I decided to pause because we also moved. And I just so I did three years of it, and then I, I paused for six years. And then when actually Nicholas was going to kindergarten, I thought, no, come on, Judy, take this up again. So I then completed my um, undergrad. And then I thought, well, I really enjoyed this, so I'm going to do my master's. (laughs) So I ended up then doing my master's in applied psychology, simultaneously doing my PGDE in special ed, 
And that was when I was working at, um, at South Island School. So everything was part-time, part-time mm-hmm. um, master's, part-time PGDE and part-time working and part-time mum. Well, okay. actually full-time, full-time mum, mom. joking, yeah. not, not, <laughs> never part-time. And then, um, so I did that and I just wanted to, uh, it's an interesting thing. So actually, if I reflect, why did I want to do my PhD? Because I could have stopped at master's. Mm. Um, but I think in order to be taken seriously, for people to listen to you, um, being a doctor helps. And when I was at South Island and other places, you know, I had this idea of wanting to do social and emotional learning and developing things at the school, but nobody listened. Nobody took my, you know, word, which is fine, I get. But the interesting now, looking back, that now that I'm a doctor and Dr. Judy Blaine, Suddenly everybody wants to listen. But I've been saying the same things all the time. But because I have the doctorate, now people take me seriously. So, and I think one of the key things for me too, if I was to be brutally honest, is I wanted to prove that I was capable of it and that I wasn't stupid. Yeah. Um, One of my insecurities, ironically, because I'm now a doctor, is that um, (laughs) I just wasn't clever enough. And I know that is one of that. And, you know, you're asking me who I am. That is who I am. Um, and I come with my insecurities, too. I feel like that's very relatable. Like, I feel like I'm doing well. I'm about to start my master's. You've inspired me to pursue that academic field. Oh. But like, I feel that way as well. I'm doing it one to prove to myself that I can do it, but also to have others listen to me. Mm. But I think it's more the self-doubt thing for me, mm. like especially being in a pretty male-dominated industry. For sure. I want to be able to be like, no, this is something that mm. I do know and, what I'm talking about. Yeah, and it's actually a sad reflection, I think, on our society that we need these um, accolades, we need these titles in order to be taken seriously. You know, um, why? but I suppose they also... That said, there are a lot of charlatans out there, I guess. And so, you know, people putting themselves out there as experts in the field where actually they don't know very much. So I suppose this is one way of sort of sorting people out from sort of, you know, people who know what they're talking about. Mm, I think so. Um, So how long all up did that take you to get... Oh, from the beginning of my <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, you're right. So no, not quite. So twenty years in total, um, from when I first did my very first psychology court um, module. Yeah, nineteen and a half years. That's crazy. Just didn't give up. That's good. <laughs> That's commitment. Yeah, and the thing is, also, I, uh, you know, people say to me, "Oh, PhD must have been such hard work." Yes, it is. But like anything, if you, I would have done it for fun. I would have done the research anyway for fun. Mm. And I just happened to get a PhD out of it. And I think that when you're passionate about something, it doesn't feel like hard work. It doesn't feel like a slog. No. Yeah. Um, And very doable. Very doable. How many hours a week, roughly, would you have committed to working on your PhD? Well, it came in fits and starts. Again, one of my key things was that this was not, my family came first. Mm. This was not going to take away from, I could have done my PhD in five years. I ended up doing it in two and a half. Um, But I was determined not to let it interfere with my family life. And when my children needed me, I was there. 
Um, so I would say, they do say try and treat it like a job on eight to five, but that never worked for me because again, I want to do yeah. my exercise, you need to socialize, you need a balance. Mm -hmm. So I'd say I worked four hours a, a day, I would say from Monday to Friday. That's pretty full on. Yeah, well, 20 hours a week, it's, it's a lot. And then yeah. sometimes it was less and sometimes more. Mm. So um, you spoke briefly about balance just now. How did you find that balance? And did you find it hard? Not at all, because I'm actually one of the things I am is, is very disciplined. And I think um, what I need for me to fulfill me as a person is um, I need social interaction. Mm -hmm. I need a physical outlet and the academic side. So for me, it was quite easy to find that balance. You know, sometimes my social um, coincided with my exercise. So if yeah. I went for long bike rides with friends, I had my social interaction. But I think I know myself quite well and I know that I need those three aspects in my life. Mm. So I didn't find it difficult to balance. Um, so you were able almost to make a routine around all of those things. Yeah. That just kind of yeah. fit in. And I am I'm, I'm a pain because I'm a real creature of habit and routine. I like routine. I like, you know. Um, the, uh, the not even discipline of it, but for me it works. You know, mm. I don't like too much chaos. I like a little bit of little element of control, even <laughs> if I'm just kidding myself that it is a control. Yeah. So um, no, I didn't find that hard. But again, it comes with self-discipline. You know, and that's one thing I have got. Um, mm -hmm. Just on that, it's quite funny. When I was uh, eight years old, I think, well, ten, eight, between eight and ten. I decided to test my willpower and I gave up sweets <laughs> and I gave up sweets. At eight years old. Yeah. I gave up sweets for three years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like properly. Why? To test my willpower. Just to see. <laughs> Just to see that I could. Uh, silly. Anyway. What but that tells you a bit sweet? about myself. Um, my favorite sweets were any sweets. God, I loved sweets at that age. I How really did. How did you give them up for three years? I feel like eight-year-olds don't have a discipline. Well, yeah, I know. Well, I clearly wanted to prove a point. <laughs> I, I did allow myself to have um, peppermints from time to time, to mm. suck mints, but uh, that was the only sweet I allowed myself. Low-sugar peppermints? <laughs> no, didn't have such things in South Africa in those days. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, so... I think that probably tells you a little bit about who I am too. <laughs> I know. I find it quite interesting that you say that you're very disciplined, but then very balanced at the same time. Because I feel like quite often those two things don't go hand in hand. Really? And I think people often, or maybe it's just me, <laughs> but I feel like quite often people, especially in Hong Kong, there's like a hustle culture kind of thing where you just work full out and then other things get almost. But isn't it a discipline to be balanced? Yeah, I think so. But I feel like, like you said, socializing and exercising, they're the first two things to fall off and um, family time. Oh, I know. You see, I've never been that way. Yeah. I'm not built that way at all. In fact, if anything, kind of work would probably come last for me. I'm not um, driven. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not driven. You know, in fact, I, find I mean, so hard I, I know, <laughs> I know. Okay. So I'm not driven by that sort of thing to work mm. and to earn and to be and all, you yeah. know, top dog. Um, in fact, when I was growing up, if you had to ask me what I wanted to be, I wanted to be a mother. Yeah. And that was my soul. That's what I wanted out of life. I didn't want to be the top of my field. Um, maybe it's a bad reflection on 
on me because as women, you know, I people around me wanting to break that glass ceiling and all that. But I but, don't think that's a bad reflection. I feel like in some ways, like feminism nowadays has gone too far the other way in that if you want to be a mom, there's nothing wrong with that. Like that doesn't have to be something that's looked down upon. Well, I think it's just about is choice. Though, isn't it? Though, I think it I is. I think it is you, looked down yeah, upon. I think we, you know, because we, because of feminism, but also let's go back to why people are um, feminists, you know, sort of trying to break down this whole patriarchal society. Mm. And that's the only, is the injustice of it. And I see that where women come from. Um, by just wanting to be a mother and have a family, I don't think that I was letting the feminist side down, mm. per se, but that's just what I wanted. And I didn't feel the need to compete. Um, I didn't want to be a top lawyer or a, any yeah. of those things. But that said, my upbringing, patriarchal sort of society in which I was raised, without a doubt has affected who I am, mm. you know. Um, I, there were no expectations of me growing up. Yeah. You know, I think I wasn't pushed. I wasn't, which is, it's fine. But I think if it'd be interesting if I had had um, a little bit more, if there was a little bit more expectation put on me, I wonder if I wouldn't have then decided to study medicine. Yeah. So, mm. you know, just things like that. But because I was a girl, you know, you'll go nursing. I mean, why would you want to be a doctor? Yeah. It's quite interesting. Anyway. Mm. Um, How did you find the confidence then to make that decision for yourself? Which decision about? Or the decision to like just have just have just have listen to now <laughs> even saying so, just have children. Um, or like you say that your goal was to be a mum, but then it seems as if as soon as you like reach that goal of becoming a mum, you're like, oh no no no, I need more things. Yeah, do you know what? And that's an interesting one, and I think that a lot of this is being in Hong Kong. What I found. Because um, I worked for a bit and I worked and I, I traveled to Southeast Asia. I was marketing and sales for a medical publishing company for four years. Um, and what I found going to sort of dinner parties here is, is there was very much this, and so what do you do mm. thing? Not who are you? It's so what do you do? And I didn't actually want to go to a dinner party and say, not have anything to say. You know, to, well, and of course, you know, because immediately I'd been and I'd seen that people who were mums went to dinner party and the person would say, so what do you do? And if the answer was, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a stay-at-home mum, there would be no further conversation. They'd like turn away and talk to somebody more interesting, as though we had nothing to contribute. And I suppose that also gave, made me feel, fine, when I have children, I do want to be able to contribute to discussions and not be dismissed. Um, so that might, that was another factor probably to, to start studying again. Mm. But I do believe that everything in our lives lead us to a point. You know, it, it, we are, it's just a fabric of who we are, you know, just all these little strands weaving to get us to this point. And I think that all of those little strands, even from Maslow, from when my nursing days to... All of this has just led me to the point of my life now, and I'm actually very content where I am. So do you lean on the nurture side of things? Yes, mm. I do. But, I mean, genetics are great. I mean, obviously great, and very. <laughs> but um, I, think, I think far too many people use genetics as a, a get-out clause. Mm. I think 
of course we are the things which we are hardwired but I think we are so malleable um, and we can make choices I, I really I don't buy into this you are this and you will be that forever I'm definitely not that mm. I don't buy into that Oh, packs. Yeah, I don't know if you dog. guys can hear it. <laughs> Yesterday when I was recording an episode, Spike was running around outside and it was like... <laughs> so now we got barking. Taxi. He's going to be scratching on the door to come in now. He loves me so much. <laughs> That's Bless why him. we have puppies. Yes. So to segue awkwardly around... I think I've used the word segue too many times when I'm trying to record these things. I have no way to move smoothly from one topic to another. That's all right. That's okay. We'll just jump right in. What does segue mean? Like, what are those segues? That's an interesting point. I instantly imagine those, like, machines. Yeah, me too. I've not actually used segue. Maybe it actually means segue to... Maybe. That's quite interesting. We'll have to look that one up. Okay, I've got to stop using it now. So, yeah, you... So, to segue, are we going on to the sort of... um, physical side now of my being I think so because I think it well I'm sure it all intertwines like you've said you've had a balance throughout your mm. work with your life your family socializing exercise and then would you like to explain a little bit more about what the exercise is that you were doing yeah how sure. you became a triathlete okay so let's let's go way back at school I was all sort of team sports you know hockey and tennis and stuff like that in fact I was a rubbish athlete yeah. like runner <laughs> So much so that I can remember doing 800 meters and I was coming stone last just to get a house point. And I had literally the whole school clapping for me to sort of end this race, which is torturous for everybody to watch. (laughs) So, you know, I was not a runner. Um, Mm. And then, you know, my 20s were just sort of spent partying and all that. So I wasn't really very physical then. And then sort of mid 20s, mid to late 20s, I decided, I don't know how I decided, but I took up running and I remember doing my first 6k run and I'm nearly vomiting I was so tired and actually Robert was with me at the time and he's like are you gonna let running get the better of you and people mustn't say that to me I'm Mm -hmm. like no so I'm like no I can do this so I did my first 10k run so I was probably about 26 27 27 Uh, first 10k run on Christmas day this was November, end of November when I did the 6K. First 10K in Christmas Day. And how old were you, sorry? 27. Okay. Um, first half marathon in January. First full marathon in February. And an ultra marathon in April. And how long is an ultra marathon? At 56Ks. Far out. Within four months from starting running to that ultra marathon. Yeah, you say you're not a competitive person. (laughs) But you know, and it's interesting, I don't see myself as competitive, Mm. but I don't, because I'm not competing with anybody else. I compete with myself. But I think that in itself is still, like even having Robert say to you, well, running's going to get the better of you and you being like, yeah, I get that. Yeah, Watch me. Yeah. No, but people mustn't say that because then I'm like, "Mm." yeah. (laughs) Um, So that was that. And then I ran quite you know um, on and off but actually interestingly enough and this is from a woman's perspective I actually stopped getting my period because I was obviously underweight or running too much or whatever it was I didn't feel underweight I was really fit but I stopped getting my period and I'm going back to this I want to be a mother I'm like whoa yeah I I want to have children so I'm not going to do all this running but mm-hmm. um, it scared me a bit you know not getting my period and so I thought it might affect my fertility and all these things. So I actually stopped running um, or cut back. And then I just dabbled and did the odd half marathon and things. Um, and then I 
did other things like swimming, but not, not you know, just to keep fit, really, just to keep um, in shape. Um, did you have anyone coaching you during this time or was it just never. you just no, working me. by yourself? Yeah. yeah. So that was, you know, my 20s and then you have children. And so I walked a lot with the children um, from when they were little. I'd go for little jogs or little walks and have them in my I was pathetic I couldn't leave my children ever okay well, so that's fair enough though <laughs> so, I don't feel like you know, that's a... there was I know but I mean I would put them in prams and take them with me or put them in my pouch if they were too little and do hikes and things so um I was always active and yeah I also went to the gym a bit um and then when I turned 40 I'm like no I'm gonna do another half marathon and that's when I started running again and um, then did trail running, got really into trail running, loved the trail running. Hadn't cycled at all in all of this time, you know. Mm. I mean, obviously, I knew how to ride a bicycle, but I'd never cycled, cycled. And then um, only four years ago, actually, was when I was in South Africa. My sister, she got into – now, my sister's – by her own admission prior to all of this was isn't just not an athlete she's not a natural athlete and um she was doing half Ironman I'm like whoa if she can do this she's four years older than me if she can do this um four and a half years older than me so we're never in the same age group um I can do this too so I'm I was in South Africa um when Nicholas was a, a day boy for a bit and she's like, come on, Judy, get, get in, let's, let's do this together, it'll be fun. Fun for her, because she lives in PE, and, and she had in Port Elizabeth, and she had a massive group of people. I go to Grahamstown, I can't find anybody to ride with or anything. I'm like, okay, how am I meant to train? So I then met up with one girl who, and I'd, I'd literally never been on a road bike. I'd done mountain biking stuff, well, you know, what those old-fashioned bikes or hybrids. And, so get my bike very excited not cleats at this point I'll never forget the first time I went to put cleats on I was terrified I did I fell of course I fell what are cleats for people who might not know? oh so cleats are when you actually put you you've got um a bit on your shoe and then you clip in to the pedals and then when you stop you've got to unclip your feet to put them down and of course you when you first start this like off you go you forget to uncleat and whoops that sounds fell like over. yeah a recipe for disaster yeah so of course you have to fall from time to time but I did I did it learned and that was what four four years ago and then so yeah September I started training and you know decided why not just go straight into doing a half Ironman <laughs> so there was one um, race in between, which was a Olympic distance um, before that. So this was September. The first time I ever put my cleats on was on the 20th of September. I'll never forget it. That's amazing that you remember. Yeah, just just one of those days. And um, anyway, so did that. I had a bit of did a bit of training. Then in first week of December, they'd had, there was this Olympic distance triathlon. So it's a one and a half k swim. It's a 40k bike ride and a 10k run. I'm like, okay, you know, this is fun. And I'd never done a triathlon in my life. And obviously, um, and I go and I'm terrified, feeling so out of my depth, panicky, you know, mm-hmm. and you've got to wear wetsuits and everything because the water's cold and it's in the sea in, in Port Elizabeth. 
and there's sharks and things. And I was like, oh, anyway, really, really, I could hardly breathe. In fact, I was almost in tears my first one. Oh, no. I know. And, my, and this guy, my, one of my sister's friends just said to me, and his advice was, this is your first one. Go slow. You just finish it. Just get your confidence. Don't, you know, don't push it. And that was the best advice ever, actually. Because I went into the swim. I'm like, I don't need to win this. I just need to do it. And then once you've done the swim, that was fine. The cycle was great because it was flat. Mm. Really fantastic. And then the run. Well, running, ironically, having run all those years ago, running's not my strong point. But I did okay. Did actually really well, I thought. And so that gave me a little bit of a boost to do my the first half Ironman. Which was how many months after starting your or starting on cleats? I'm uh, using that as the September, landmark. Yeah, October, November, December. Four months. <laughs> Four months. Yeah. So, but unfortunately, um, I was back in Hong Kong to train, which was not ideal because it was winter and it was quite cold. Mm-hmm. And I got new. I got not pneumonia, bronchitis, and. Um, so off I go to do this. I got clearance from the doctor, but my chest was still quite um, tight. And in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have done it. But the swim was fine and the cycle was fine. But the minute I started running, I um, got a sort of chest pain. And I'm like, Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be sensible. So I actually walked the run. Okay. But I finished. Still had 45 minutes to spare. And I finished. Well done. So that was, um, that was good. How did you feel after that? Oh, like I was, promise you, like I was the only person in the whole world that had done this. Like I was, I'd won something, you know, it was the most amazing feeling. I had the same feeling actually when I did my first marathon. Mm. It's like you're the only person in the world who's ever achieved something so amazing. Yeah. Now it's a huge sense of achievement and accomplishment. Um. Especially for triathlons, I feel, because they're so long, and an Ironman particularly. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I have to say, and, and yes, um, the, the, the triathlon, the, the Olympic distance, is very doable. For somebody who's relatively fit, you can get out of bed and you can just pull it out the hat, so to speak. An Ironman, you have to train. A half Ironman, I mean. My God, there's no way I'm going to even attempt a full Ironman. I just... I'm. So my, what did I do that one in with the walking there? So in fact, my um, run time was almost the same as my cycle time, which is obviously meant to be much, much less. Mm. Um, but I had I did it in seven hours, 45, and you've got eight and a half hours to do it in. That's the cutoff That's for the cutoff. half Ironman. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I think that that is just the right amount of time for me. I don't want to go further. I don't want to be on the road for 16 hours. No way. Yeah. That's just too much. So I don't think I'll ever do a full Ironman. But no, it is a real sense of achievement. But you have to train. You yeah. know, you can't just pull that one out of the hat. What did your training look like for that? Well, again, I mean, I'm not, um, I didn't have a trainer. I kind of just sucked it out of my head. And I knew my sister, she has, tra- she follows a program. Mm-hmm. So she would sort of send me what she was doing. And you would just do that? And I'd just kind of follow suit. I knew that I roughly had to cycle three times a week, swim three times a week, and run three times a week. One thing I never did, and I still never do, is that running off the bike thing. I know you should, you know, because that transition from cycling to running, 
um, it's quite hard. Your muscles are so used to cycling, and it's a very odd stance when you first start running. But I just never did that. What's the transition look like? Would you mind just elaborating a bit on that? So, okay, well, obviously your transition, because all of this um, is taken into your time, right? So you've got to be quite good and quick at your transitions. Mm -hmm. So from your swim to your cycle, that's transition one. You've got to remove your wetsuit, put on your cycle shoes and go. And there's some people who put their shoes on the bike and then literally jump on the bike slip their feet in to the shoes while they're on in on the bike and then do them up while they I'm like bloody hell I don't know how they do that that would have to be like a full training session a week in itself to get yeah. something like that no but some people the transition from swim to um bike is like three minutes or not even three minutes two minutes what would it normally be? Like, what's a really good transition time? No, that is a good oh, transition. I mean, my sister, the first time I was following, because you can track people. I mean, she like spent 12 minutes or 15 <laughs> minutes in transition. I'm like, did you have a cup of tea or something? What on earth? Anyway, she's got a bit better at that. But, you know, she likes to wash her feet, get the sand off, oh. dry your feet. I mean, there's other guys, literally. Well, fair enough, though, because yeah. you're uncomfortable running like a half marathon. Well, exactly. You but you, So cycling and then, yeah. Anyhow, so... Um, so that's your biggest time transition because removing your wetsuit and all that takes time. But when you get, I'll tell you about Worlds in a little while, but at Worlds, you get people who take your wetsuit off for you. You get helpers. Yeah, it's great. You just stand there and they take your wetsuit off. This is the world championship yeah, for yeah. Half Ironman. Yeah. Um, anyway, and then the next transition is from your um, cycle to your run. And you then have to obviously take your cycle shoes off, put on your running shoes, make sure you've got your hat, um, whatever else you need. And because nobody can help you when you're doing a half Ironman, you cannot get you'll be disqualified if you get support from anybody else. So if you forget your hat or something, nobody can give you a hat. So you've got to sort of have everything. Yeah. Mm. Um, But the, the transition from cycling to running, it's more the difficult part is just because you, you've been on that bike and you've had that mo- momentum with your legs and then suddenly you're having to run, you feel a little bit like John Wayne, you know, <laughs> it's sort of a, just an odd thing and you, it takes a while to get into that running, um, sort of running thing. But that's what you're meant to practice. Mm. Apparently you're meant to practice that. It's called block sessions. You're meant to practice that three times a week and I, I didn't. <laughs> so what was your transition time like? Um, well, I can't even remember now. I'll have to look. Not very good. Um, but it was better than my sister. <laughs> better than 15 minutes. <laughs> better than 15 minutes. Yeah, and then also, you know, these are the times, I don't know, these the, the top athletes, they must obviously not go to the loo or anything. But, you know, you need loo breaks and stuff, and transition's a good time to do that. So mm, okay. you've got to incorporate all of that. <laughs> I swear, people must just pee down their legs I think and they stuff do. as well. I have heard that people pee on their bicycles. I just don't know how you can. I mean, it's, you know, peeing in your wetsuit's one thing, right? Mm, at least you've got the ocean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But not peeing on a bike. Yeah, but the, the worst is when you when and you get some really funny things happen. So um, quite often these you have a dry start, okay? So um, when you're swimming, so you're in your wetsuit. And you can tell the people who are peeing because suddenly they're just puddles right there. Yeah. Um, and this one friend of my sister's, she's like trying to quietly do a pee but she didn't realize that her wetsuit had a hole in it <laughs> just, just coming out anyway that was funny are there videos of that <laughs> yeah, no 
But my first, I'll tell you, my first that um, half Ironman, that one I was telling about in, in South Africa, my nephew was doing it and my sister, and it was really lovely. So the three of us kind of were at, started, and we sort of all held hands, and we ran into the sea together. It was really sweet. But um, we were there waiting, and a seagull came and just pooed on us into my, into my goggles. Stop it. Yeah. How long did you have to spend cleaning that? Well, luckily there were people. No, no, before we started. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, while we were waiting. So luckily there were people with water and that. And you just, but you don't realize that that seagull's poo really smells like fish. So I had that fish smell the whole way through. Maybe why I swam so fast. I was going to say, did you (laughs) buy into the fact that bird's poo is a good luck Good luck, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And when it lands right on you. In your goggles. In my goggles. Yeah. That's super so good luck. Then. I just decided that was going to be good luck. It was really <laughs> funny. Um, yeah, so then what happened? And then I didn't do another... No, when? No, I didn't do another... I mean, I did a bit of training and stuff. But then I did 2018. So that was 2017. Then 2018, March, my nephew said to me, come, let's go and do a half man in the Philippines. So we went to Davao City. Davao, Davao. Anyway, get there, and um, it was really quite fun doing it in a completely different place. And my nephew was with me, and we shared a room, which was really funny. And um, hot, hot, hot. And it was no wetsuit, obviously, because the water is so hot, but beautiful. Oh, my word. The swim, was you saw all the coral and all the fishies. It was just wow. incredible. How do you Absolutely. not get distracted by that? Well, no, you know, you just swim fast and then you see more fishies. <laughs> but um, that was that was lovely. And then the um, cycle was great, flat, uh, did a good time in that. And then the run. And again, you know, it was hot as anything, but I'd hurt my hamstring, so I couldn't run. How did you hurt your hamstring? <sighs> just age, wear and tear, uh, you know, not doing proper strength training. Yeah. Um, all of that. And, um, yeah, anyway, but I was, I looked and it was my nephew and I both looked and we were like, okay, you know, because the World Championships was in South Africa for that year, 2018. And what happens is that you can qualify, uh, if you come first in your age group, anywhere in the world, you qualify for Worlds. And um, so we said, I mean, we knew we weren't going to win it, but Sometimes they have extra slots that you can that come you know come to whatever age group. And what age group were you competing in at the time? I was fifty years old. How did the age groups five, work? Yeah, Are every they, five years. Every five years. Mm. Okay. So I was fifty to fifty-five. Anyway, went and the woman who won um, in my age group, she already had a slot. Uh, she'd won before in in Australia. Oh, okay. So she didn't need the slot. And I came fourth in my age group out of 12. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but still, I came fourth. And then the other two that came ahead of me, came second and third, um, didn't want to take the slot, so it rolled down to me. So I qualified for the World Champions. Which I'm is like, amazing. Whoa! We were so excited. And took the slot, and you've got to pay there and then. I know, how, I can't even remember how much US dollars, but you, you in this, and you can't leave without you know, putting down the payment. So I'm like, okay, it's fine. This is an opportunity. Absolutely. And so you get your little thing and, you know, it's a little medal to say you're now going to go to the World Championships. I'm like, yay. And then 
you get home and you think, what the hell have I just done? <laughs> Is this, wait, sorry, straight after the race, you have to basically yeah, confirm. absolutely, there and then. Wow. And, and you're filled with endorphins. Yeah, and like, yes, I mean, that's I can do anything. <laughs> and I absolutely. wonder, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how many people pull out. Um, well, I'm sure it must for injuries and things, but oh, we were so excited. And my nephew also got a slot. Oh, he did? Yeah. What so age he was he twi- He was 20 to 24. Okay. He was young, in a young age group, obviously. But um, so he got it too. And we were like so over the moon, just beside ourselves. And uh, so this was uh, March and September was the world and in South Africa. And then the reality hit. I'm like, I need to train and I actually need to get a trainer. Yeah. Because up until this point, I just sucked it out of my thumb. So um, in South Africa in Grahamstown, there was this guy who's a physio and he does strength training and stuff. Um, And he and a friend put together a little program for me. And it was great. I mean, it wasn't hard. And I think what their key thing was not overtraining, especially for somebody of my age. You know, I think a lot of people overtrain. And you're better off entering something like that undertrained than overtrained. But I think people also assume that as soon as they get a coach, that the coach is just going to smash them every session. Yeah. And it's not necessarily yeah. about that. It's about training smart. Yes, hard. exactly. So we'd had that. I mean, you know, 20%, 80%, you know, 20% hard. And then 80% was just kind of endurance um, and at in zone one, two. Mm-hmm. And so very little at, you know, peak. Um, what was interesting, though, so for me, swimming and cycling, pretty easy to do. And very much, I mean, even now, I struggle to get out of zone two in cycling or swimming. Maybe it's just because I don't push myself. But running... No matter what I do, I'm in zone three straight away. <laughs> mm. um, These are heart rate zones, yeah. by the way. Yeah, people sorry. don't know what they are. Yeah, heart rate zones. So then I needed to start training, and I did. And I trained really well, I think. Um, did it change a lot from what you were doing by yourself? Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, it was far more structured, and it was far more... Um, uh, what's the word, made the most use of, of my time. You know, before I would just do, you know, I didn't try and push my heart rate up. I didn't, I just did, <laughs> yeah. um, just cruised. I'm great at just cruising, you know, in my little bubble and I enjoy it. But now they, especially with the running, I really, really tried. Um, and then I came to Worlds and flew to South Africa. And my sister wasn't, she didn't qualify. She didn't want to. Um, but she didn't. So she was there very much supporting me. And you get the woman to doing it on day one. And then the next day the men do it. What I didn't anticipate, and I think this was like, you know, you just sort of go, hey, yeah, I've got into worlds. Woohoo. I, it really struck me when we had to rack our bikes. So the night before, you've got to rack your bikes. Um, so it's all ready. But you deflate the tires and stuff so that, that you know, and the next day you've got to go and pump the tires up again. Because in case the heat and your Mm. tubes explode and all this. I'm I'm just learning all this new sort of technology. So I'll go into where my bike's wrecked. And this is the morning of the race. And I'm like, oh, my God. I looked like, my bike looked like the farm had just come to town. You know, it was, everyone else's zooted, I mean, fancy bikes like you've never seen in your life before with solid wheels well not quite but you know these massive bloody things and I literally had my nothing I just had my normal rims 
everyone else got these deep set this and that and everyone's by their bikes and they're doing this I didn't know what to do so I just picked up my bike and spun the wheel <laughs> I mean hello whatever what are they doing <laughs> and it was then and putting on their nutrition and putting all their things in, and I'm looking around thinking whoa and I came out of that sort of and then once you've left transition you can't go back in so you'd make sure everything's right for your run and your um and your cycle and I came out of there and I just burst into tears and I said to my sister I just can't do this these people are so good and they're professionals because they are I mean semi-professional a lot of these people right and you've got the professionals there as well so um she's like no you can do it you know you'll be fine and um anyway so then you have to get into your pens according to age group and you look around you you know you can see all the old people are like you you wear different color hats um, caps and it was so cold because of course in September I've come out of South Africa in winter and the water was freezing so I actually was get, I had two caps on just to keep my head um, head warm and then you do the swim and I love the swim I mean I do really enjoy swimming and I came out I didn't realize at the time because like, you don't know what your timing is compared to everybody else and you can't see everybody's caps and stuff but you know, my sister was there and other friends cheering me on. Like, go, Gigi, you fantastically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, whoa, go me. <laughs> and then get on my bike. And it's a lovely cycle. It was so beautiful. It was windy, though. Um, but it's so beautiful. It really is. They're just it was, a, it was a coastal route. And I remember I'd done one of the training cycles with my sister before. So I knew a little bit of the route. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, my biggest fear, let me say, was coming stone last. I don't know why it was a fear, but I just didn't want to come last. <laughs> and it was a real fear because these guys are all top of their game and I'm, re- I'm really not. I got there by default, essentially. Um, so we go, and I remember going up this hill and thinking, okay, on my way back, if I see cyclists still coming up, I know I'm not going to come last. And so off I went. And you can't um, draft, so you can't actually be next to anybody for too long. But I like chatting, you know. I like talking. I'm tra- passing people. I'm like, "Hi, are you having fun? You know, welcome to South Africa. Isn't it beautiful?" And they all look at me as I'm stone mad. Anyway, um, they're all in their own world. All in their own world. Just there. Really focusing, and I'm sort of chatting about, "Oh, isn't it a beautiful day? Listen to the birds." They all like, "Oh God, this woman's nuts." Are you high? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was. It was actually funny you say that. It was kind of a high. You she can't believe that you sort of part of all of this anyway cycled it done and then there was this um uh, then the run started and I don't know if you in Australia have you ever heard of Bold and the Beautiful mm. okay it's like a sitcom yeah a soap opera yeah sorry. so there was this woman from the Bold and the Beautiful that oh was running but she happened to be running all the time near where I was and so you'd have tv cameras coming to film her because they're so, so funny and i was like okay i'm either gonna pass her or i'm gonna just let her go and they, everyone was cheering for her and everything so i took some of the cheer for myself <laughs> but in the end i'm just like oh, please just go faster than me but um and then <laughs> so you're I'm running and it's a great it's not a bad run at all in fact i managed to do under two and a half hours for the half marathon for you know, and that's after my cycle and everything, which I thought was really quite, I was very chuffed with that. Um, but then you see, because you've got a couple of loops, and you, and, and you see 
a bicycle next to the last athlete with a big sign saying last athlete. And this poor last athlete, that's what I, that was my fear. I just didn't want to be that last athlete. But good on them. Anyway, um, everyone finished. And as it turns out, I, in the swim, so there are 125 of us in my age group. For the swim, I came 37th out of 125. That's I was amazing. like, whoa. And then for the cycle, um, 102. <laughs> and then the run, 108. Nice. So um, I didn't come last. And that was my big thing. Uh, I just didn't want to come last. But it was such a great experience. Would I want to do it again? I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I'm not that level athlete. Um, but you quite obviously are if you're placing 37. Well, that was in the swim. Um, you know, but I think a lot of triathletes swimming isn't, it's only such a small part of it. Mm, so they don't focus on it as much? No. No, and, and you know maybe they weren't used to the South African cold water, or I don't know. But um, don't take away from what you did. No, though. no, I'm not. But I'm just saying I'm not. You know these people are definitely top of their game, and it was a great experience. But I was way out of my comfort zone, way out. But I did it. You did do it, mm. and that was a great achievement. It fills me with anxiety hearing about trying new things. Yeah, well, but you were there and you did it. Yeah. And they say, actually, Tilly, that to, it's funny because you obviously, at my age, you start reading about things that um, help you in life, not live longer, but keep your brain. And they say you actually should put yourself out of your comfort zone. So doing Sudoku every single day is not the answer. You've got to actually challenge yourself and put yourself out of your comfort zone for your cognitive development as well. Or not development, let's face it, we're not developing, but (laughs) maintenance of your cognitive abilities. But I think if you are trying new things, I'm sure there's some element of development there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Can we develop at our age? (laughs) (laughs) Develop new skills. Yeah. No, true. True. I always sort of think of development as something that happens and you get to a certain middle age and there's no more development per se. Um, But I guess there is. I guess there is. Yeah. So that's me and the sort of road to the journey to um the half iron man that was insane but you know you say that and again i repeat i i really believe anybody can do it i do you know i don't think i'm extraordinary i think it's very doable for anybody if you put your mind to it yeah i think that's just it's if you what you want to do what about from an accessibility kind of perspective? What's the buy-in or the cost? Yeah, you see, there is. I mean, I, yeah, and and the good question. You know, I've I've got to uh, you know disclaimer alert or whatever you want to say. I am coming from a place of privilege. Um, in that, so from a socioeconomic point of view, I can afford a bicycle. Um, I can afford a nice wetsuit. Um, but that said, you know. There are loads of people who do it. You don't need the top of the range bicycle. You don't need top of the range wetsuit. And in fact, some of the time it's just all too complicated, the top of the range, everything. I don't think it enhances it that much. I mean, that said, I have now got the deep set wheels. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I can honestly tell you that that does make a difference. But from the others of the running, doesn't make a difference. Swimming doesn't really make a difference but your bike I think does so yes accessibility and then again you know you've got to look at 
where to train. Um, in Hong Kong, as we know, sort of cycling on the roads is not the safest. So, you know, you need to actually go out to the airport and find a safe place to, to cycle. But then you can, a lot of people train indoors mm. and do indoor cycling. And they say that actually makes you stronger doing the indoor stuff. Why is that? Um, because you can't freewheel ever. <laughs> oh, okay. You so know, it's, like... it's constant. You know, mm. when you're cycling, you can freewheel, you can go downhills and you chill. Whereas if you're on an indoor trainer, they, they ain't no freewheeling. Mm. So, um, but yeah, you know, we 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 have to sort of admit to ourselves that, yeah, accessibility is quite often a, a prohibitive factor. That's quite interesting. Mm. Yeah, but I think you know you can get a second-hand bike, or you know I yeah. think everything's I think doable if you want if you to do your, it. Yeah. You can. Yeah, and I but but as far as um, accessibility from a physical point of view, you know I think again you, you know I mean mine was a bit silly in that I did it four months after first getting on a bike <laughs> kind of thing again, but you know some. It, build up you know do a mini triathlon then do a olympic one and then do a half ironman and then stop <laughs> and then tap out after world champs yeah yeah so no but it has it's been a great great journey and, and something I'm, I'm very proud of you should be mm. i mean yeah i find it so hard listening to you and you saying you're not extraordinary and stuff like that but you put in the work and there's yeah. that saying it's like heart or talent fails yeah I do I do and I think I mean hard work wins out over absolutely, talent when talent absolutely. fails to work hard yes yeah exactly and I you know I have um I wouldn't say I'm a talented athlete by any stretch of the imagination but I put, put the work in but I put the work in yeah absolutely and it's the same with anything in life though yeah. really isn't it I think so you know talent gets you so far but if you've got talent and no work times zero then you're not going to get anywhere mm. So I suppose I just want to go back to what you were saying. You were talking to everybody during the race. Yeah. What else was going through your mind? Were there like times where you were like, oh, no, this is just too no, much? No, never. Mm-mm. Never. How did you keep that positive attitude all the way through a really long race? What is the full? Have we spoken about what the actual distance is? For oh, those? so no, I don't think we did. So it's 1.9K swim, mm-hmm. followed by a 90K bike ride, and then 21.1K run at one point to be honest and again it goes back to running and for me it's just a mind thing I yeah I just wasn't really enjoying the run and then I what happens to me with running is that I'm like oh shit I don't want to do this I mean what, what am I doing this for you know I'll just walk and then it's like no Judy actually you want to do it in under two and a half you can't just walk on this one you know all my other half I'll say all of them I've only done four half Ironman and this was my third. So the other two, I hadn't managed to run at all because I'd had the hamstring and I'd had bronchitis. Mm. So I had no, you know, so I'm like, no, you can walk, run, sure, but you're not going to just walk. Because I do sometimes just get a bit pissed off. And I'm like, ah, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to walk. <laughs> and um, so I just did lamppost to lamppost. So run to one lamppost, walk. And that's what got me through then, that part. And then you know that the end, like you've nearly finished, you've done 15 Ks, you're like, come on, you, you know. And of course, people supporting is great. 
I mean, that really does make a difference. Are there people the whole entire way along the tracks? Yeah. Wow. So it's quite Sydney a big for, event. Yeah. Certainly for the run. Yeah. You know, but cycling, I for me, cycling, I just love. I mean, I just feel free and I feel I'm just, I love it. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's pretty. I don't think I could just go through tunnels and that sort of thing mm. if I were that, you know, that wouldn't do it for me. But, do they have um, any races that are like that? I don't know. I think, I mean, like the Hong Kong Marathon, Standard Chartered Marathon, they go through tunnels a lot. Mm. You go to the airport and back. I, I wouldn't want to do something like that. Yeah. For me, it must be aesthetically pleasing as well. <laughs> because you do, you notice things, you know. In fact, in the Philippines, on the cycle, they literally had people the whole way along. I felt like a man, a celebrity. And if people would, and you'd wave, and they would roar, the crowd would roar, and it was like, hey, this is fantastic. That's amazing. <laughs> what was yeah. the kind of demographic of people who were doing the Iron Man? Um, like, where were they from? All around the world? For, from the, at Worlds? Or, or in any one of the competitions? Uh, so in South Africa, the first one I did, they were mostly local okay. South Africans, um, and with a few coming in from overseas. In the Philippines, they were from all over, um, a lot of local Filipinos, um, and then just scattered people who I think wanted to qualify. I think it's quite easy to qualify for Worlds when you're in Asia, <laughs> um, so we discovered. And so, yeah, just a mixture. In fact, my nephew, he said he felt like he, Justin Bieber must feel, because every time <laughs> he was like, they just loved him, absolutely so loved funny. him. It was really funny. Um, but interestingly enough, on the on that demographic, I think that I could be wrong on this, but I think that the statistics are twenty five percent women to seventy five percent men. Still, wow. still, isn't that crazy? That is crazy. It's still very much a male dominated sport. I don't know why that is because I feel like, yeah, I don't know either. To be honest with you, I think um, maybe the distance puts women off. You know, I think it's a, um, maybe even just the name. Iron Man. Yeah. Maybe. What would they change it to? Iron Person. I doesn't don't know. Have but the you, same ring to no, it. it doesn't. It doesn't. But it doesn't. I mean, that doesn't actually phase me at all. The the you know we can't change everything in the world. Mm. But, um, I don't know. It's it's. I think that puts a lot of people off. The distance. That is really interesting. Yeah, mm. the distance. Because I feel like in themselves, swimming, running, or cycling aren't necessarily male-dominated. No. But then altogether. Yeah. Seemingly. Well, it's like these all these and and here in Hong Kong, I mean, you get all the mammals, right? Middle-aged men in lycra, <laughs> and um, they, you know, uh, I've never it, heard that. That's so you? funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the mammals, and the mammals here. Whoa, they have the best gear because obviously there's you know a lot of bankers and things, and they're able to really, you know, spend and get get the right amount of gear. But you know, let's face it, what a healthy way to decompress, right? So I'm not going to hold that against them at all. Mm. I think it's a very healthy way to decompress. It's still a pretty full-on way to decompress, though, if you're competing in Ironman. Yeah, it is. But then it's like better it's than drugs. and By no means a casual... Yeah, no. but in comparison yeah. to drugs. In itself, it probably is a bit of a drug, like you said, that it feeling is, afterwards. It is. And I think, you know, I get to a point now, um, I can't not exercise for two days in a row. Mm. I can like one day rest, 
but don't ask me you know don't take it away from me because I suppose it is like an addiction makes me feel good yeah but is that a bad thing I don't know well if you're meeting the guidelines you're doing it safely Mm. like 300 minutes or 150 moderate to vigorous a week is that what they say yeah, the recommended guidelines are something like 300 minutes of mo- or light to moderate, 150 of moderate to vigorous, uh, or something like that. I didn't even that. know there were some guidelines. But if you're training for triathlons, it's probably well and above yes. both of those things. Yeah. But I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm not really in training now because there are no, no events happening. But mm. um, it is, it's, uh, I love it. And it makes me happy. I feel like you're the perfect person to ask this question to. Do you think you can ever be truly elite if you have balance? No. Mm. I don't. I think you have to sacrifice one thing or another. And, you know, you get to, I don't know, maybe for some people, but I don't, it doesn't, why would you do that? You know, I mean, a great, uh, that's probably a silly question. <laughs> some people would want to be elite, but I think just my makeup, myself, I've never wanted to be so... Um, but I feel like you're an interesting case study of that because you did get into the world champions. You have your doctorate. And those are arguably two very difficult things to do, very elite things to do. No, but you see, I disagree. I don't think they're elite. And I think that anybody can do it. Mm. I, don't, I really don't consider myself to be elite or extraordinary or anything. I'm very ordinary. I'd love to hear what people listening to this think. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I am. I'm very ordinary. You know, I, I drink my wine and I have my chippies at night, every night. Mm. Um, I don't want to sacrifice. I, 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 don't, I wouldn't want to sacrifice anything to get any better. I don't, I don't feel that need. And I think that if I were elite... Then I'd want if I felt that I was elite, then I would sacrifice things to 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 get better and higher and, but that's not what I'm after. Mm. I like the balance. Balance is good. That's really good. It's a mm. good place to be. So, would you define success then as having that balance and just being able to have it all at the same time? Do you know what I think? I was interesting. I was thinking about what success means, and success obviously means different things to different people, but I think. Ultimately, success is achieving your own aims and objectives. What do you set out to do mm. and achieving those? It's not anybody else's, what they're putting on you. So I set out to do a PhD and I got my PhD. That's an achievement. That's success. I set out to do a half Ironman. I achieved it. I accomplished that. And that's success for me. Hmm. You know, um, getting in rules was just a little extra, which was really fun. But do I want to be the best athlete, I'm the best triathlete in my age group? No, I really don't. Um, I like. I think this is an interesting thing too, Tilly. Is is, is there's a big difference between being com- being a competitor and being a participant. Hmm. And I'm a participant, and I think I'm a participant in life. It, you know, um, I'm not, I have no desire to compete with other people to be anything. I just like participating. I enjoy my participation. And I enjoy, and in fact, if you think of all, if you think of races, there wouldn't be races without participants. We couldn't all be competitors, you know? You need, otherwise, everyone will feel pretty shit about themselves because <laughs> we're not going to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that it's a mindset. 
I think. And for me, I participate. I don't compete. What advice would you give to people who want to switch to more of the participation mindset or yeah, it's not interesting. compete or compare yeah. so much with other people? Well, again, it's setting your own objectives and your own aims. I mean, I have I have several friends who've been competitive um, and find it very hard to participate now, n- knowing that they can't compete because they're not there anymore. Other people are better. And they finding find it very hard to just be a participant. Um, there is a lot. There's a CrossFit athlete, Annie Thorisdorter, and she's been a like, professional athlete her whole life. And she's just had a baby. And she's been talking about how it's incredibly difficult for her. Mm. It's almost starting from scratch. And she's like, but I'm one of the best. Mm. And now I'm not one of the best. Mm. And that like redefining of your identity would be quite tough. Absolutely. But, you know, I think we as women constantly redefine our identity. And, and, and it's something, it's a, it, again, it's a mindset thing. You know, your body changes. I mean, my body has changed four times from, you know, being me and then pregnant and me and pregnant and me and pregnant. And it's a very different body shape. And, and you know, you have to keep bouncing back and changing and adapting to the limitations. And, the, and then your body's forever changed. But you just go with it, you know. What's, this is the key thing, I think, is just don't fight it. Everything will be as it should be. I know? have that tattooed on me for people who don't know me. Oh, right. That's, <laughs> it yeah. will be. It never yeah. was. No, it exactly. was never meant to be. It was never meant to be. Precisely. And I, I, I firmly believe that everything is as it should be. It's interesting you say that because on the previous episode, I was speaking to Kate and Kate was talking about how she always does her best when she has lower expectations of what's going to happen yes like, puts less pressure on it yes but that's true you know why put so much pressure on yourself you know it's, life's tough enough without you putting added pressure on just in that i mean an interesting and i know we could carry on talking i'm going to jump into because one of the questions you asked me and i think this is an important um thing one of the things you when you sent to me before mm. this podcast is when are the a failure talking about failure and sort of when have you failed and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's an important thing to also take into account. Um, and I'm not talking, I won't talk about um, failure in sport or, or that. I'm going to jump completely and be very honest. And you won't, because it really, and I thought I must address this. And um, one of the, I think of the question was, when have you failed or what, what is one of your failures or something? And or a time that you felt like you failed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is an interesting thing. And, and my, um, my husband and I have separated. And for me, that for a long time felt like a failure. I had failed. I'd failed to keep a marriage going. I'd failed to keep my children's, the family unit together, even though... In my heart of hearts, I knew that there was nothing more I could have done. Um, it felt like a failure. And the shame was the overriding emotion that came with that. And this is something, and I'll say, I'll sort of, if, you know, whoever listening, is that you've got to address shame. You've got to voice it. You've got to say, I feel shame, because otherwise shame will consume you. And a lot of people say to me, but, you know, why shame society puts expectations on us 
And when we feel we don't meet up to those expectations, we feel ashamed. We feel shame. And the biggest antidote, the biggest sort of fuel to shame is, is silence. Because then that just exacerbates it. And if you're stewing in it, it's But if you worse. talk about it and acknowledge it and say, this is how I'm feeling, then shame, it, 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 it extinguishes the shame. Hmm. So being, and so that's why I thought it was important to address this now. Yeah. Is to sort of say, and we will, we'll have failures all through our lives in one aspect of our lives or another. But we can't let shame engulf us. And I think that's a key thing. So, yes, my marriage has failed. Um, I'm not going to absolve myself and say I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, it did come as a surprise to me, though. But anyway, um, clearly, um, you know, relationships with two people. Yes, it's failed. Yes, it did feel, felt a huge element of shame that I'm still working through. But I will acknowledge that and I will work through it. And I think that's the key thing with failure is to acknowledge it, work through it. And, yeah. and is that how you're working through it, by talking to other people about it? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, um, that and... Just, I mean, I've also learned <laughs> not to try and understand. You know, again, in, in things, um, you will never understand other people um, fully. And, and again, the other thing, you know, like what you've got on your, on your, um, your tattoos is, I really do believe everything is as it should be. And if this is how it should be, then this is it, you know? So that's what helps me too. Through working through it, do you still define it as a failure now that you've had like a little bit of time or a little bit of perspective on it? Oh, yeah. Um, sadly. Yeah. You know, um, I was brought up in quite a sort of conservative thing where marriages, you know, you just, uh, it was considered a failure. You know, divorce was a dirty word, so to speak. Um, and I know loads of people who stay with their partners or husbands even though they really, really, really are unhappy and there's no relationship there, but they don't want the stigma. Um, what advice would you give to those kind of people? Be true to yourself. Honestly, just be true to yourself. We all, we all I mean, in every relationship and stuff, you compromise and, and stuff, which is fine, but don't compromise yourself. And your values. And your values. And I think for me, that's what it came to. I was prepared to um, compromise and work hard to keep in, because every relationship's hard work, work really, really hard. But when it compromised my values, I'm like, nah, that's it. Sorry, I'm mm -hmm. not prepared to compromise myself. And so I suppose in, in retrospect, yes, it's a failure, but I'm also now starting to see it as an opportunity. Mm. Um, that's a hard thing to do, though, to turn that around. Like It is. It's still a lot of work. Yeah. I'm still working on it. And there's some times where I've just got to pretend that I'm okay with it, and I'm not. Um, but that's okay. I know that it will come, and I will feel it. Mm. You know, there was a time where I could hardly breathe with the pressure of it. It was so... Um, but now I can breathe, and now I know that the opportunity is for me, and I'm true to myself, and that's the essence of who I am and nobody's going to take that away oh, that's so important mm. we talked a little bit about 
redefining yourself have mm. you had to do that yeah and interesting you know so you asked me I introduced myself at the beginning as Mrs Judy Stevenson because that's what I'm known as here for the most part and mother of Kirsty, Sarah Rachel and Nicholas but I'm Judy Blaine and I'm Dr Judy Blaine now yes and, you are <laughs> <laughs> and I found out about um my husband's emotional affair just before I submitted my PhD and I thought you know what I'm going to reclaim my name and I want to submit this under Dr as under Blaine so I want to be I don't want to be Dr Stevenson so I did I was fortunate I was able to I changed my um, South African ID and so I'm Blaine in South Africa and Stevenson here and that's fine I don't mind Stevenson because it's children and I'd really you know it's part of who I have been but I am Dr. Judy Blaine, and that is who I am. And I feel that that's my voice. I think that that little girl, Judy Blaine that was, is being heard again. And I think that's very important. I struggle to rephrase the question again, but I just want to know what you would tell, like that little girl who's looking up to you, struggling to find her voice. What advice would you give her? You know... Or what advice you've got you give to, to your children. Yeah. So, again, this whole, and I know it sounds, but just be true to yourself. First, you've got to know who you are. And it takes time to find out who you are. And we do adapt, and we have to adapt sometimes to a little bit of what society expects. Okay, so you have to sort of smooth off a few of your rough edges, so to speak. But don't let that little, that essence of Judy Blaine go. You know, mm. you are worthwhile. You are worthy. You don't have to alter who you are to fit into a society that is putting pressure on you to change. You know, there comes with with being married and all the rest comes responsibilities. And particularly like, you know, if your husband is well established in society. And then there are certain expectations of how a doctor's wife should behave and how a doctor's wife should present herself. So a doctor's wife shouldn't have purple hair and piercings and things, you know. But, and I suppose this is my little rebellion, and like I've always wanted purple hair. So now I'm Dr. Judy Blaine. Um, I'll have purple ends to my hair, <laughs> and I'll have a tattoo that says perspective. And it's these, you know. Um, but what would I advise my children is just know the essence of who you are and don't let anybody alter that essence. Oh, force you to be anything that you want I think like you said it's pretty easy to like fall into society's expectations like even with this podcast I know that if it was like a shorter episode or if it was like more consumable bites maybe more people would listen to it but that's not what I'm interested in hearing mm. I want to hear like people's actual thoughts and conversations mm. so, no you don't want people's edited I don't want to change no. yeah exactly you know we can all present nice things I could tell you things that your audience you know the audience whatever it is out there wants to hear but this is me this is the truth and this is what i think we need to we we all need to focus on i think vulnerability is going to be Absolutely. a big theme here vulnerability sure. make yourself vulnerable it's okay on that you know you asked me who my dream person to um would be to um interview and Brene Brown is somebody, and she speaks a lot on vulnerability and on shame. 
And she's had some TED Talks and things on that and the power of vulnerability. How do you spell that first name, sorry? Brené, B-R-E-N-E with a little thing on the accent, e, yeah. accent on the E, <laughs> okay. Brown. Um, so look her up. She's got some really, and she's written on uh, books on leadership and things like mm. that. But um, the power of vulnerability and shining a light on shame is um, her are her key things that I've taken away from her talks and things like that. And that's helped me a lot. Um, I think it's important to be vulnerable. Very important. Because we are vulnerable. And it's okay to be vulnerable. I'm just thinking from a perspective of, like if I want to work in elite sports and things like that, with so few women in positions, like as coaches, it was something like 11%, I think, of the coaching staff at Rio Olympics was women. Or it might be slightly different to that. I think it was 11 though. Um, but it's tough to be in a position like that and then still be vulnerable. I feel like I feel like, especially in male-dominated places, yes and there's no, not that vulnerability. Yes and no, and I think that if you think about it, and this will come like leadership training is you're a leader, right? Mm. Is um, kindness and vulnerability are things in leadership that actually should all leaders should have. And I think that because, again, this whole patriarchal society and the way we've perceived leaders or put in leadership positions and they don't show vulnerability and they don't show that kindness at all to themselves or to their people. But I think we can change the way leaders, trainers and that are. I think people respond to vulnerability. And authenticity, I feel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's very easy to tell. Like, I'm a big sook at heart, so I feel like if I went into somewhere and tried to act like a super macho, super yeah. aggressive, people would be like, mm, no, okay. that's not going to work. No, but also, mm. do we want that? You know, again, I know, then then those people would find the coaches that, you know, did mm. the whole army style, you are rubbish and break them down and all that. And if that's what you respond to, go for it. But I think most people respond to kindness and gentleness. And building up. And it's this whole, you know, I mean, I love the title, it is safe strength. I mean, I, what I do, my work um, is a strength-based approach. Why not work on our strengths? You know, let's work from a strength-based. Why? The world tells us all our deficits all the time. So let's just try not to focus on those. Let's go from a strength-based approach. I just want to quickly say something, and then I want to follow up and have you talk a little bit more about what you're doing for your work. Um, but there's this woman who sold her company for a billion dollars, Cindy Eckhart, um, and she always wears bright fluoro pink and she walks into meetings like that and she's like, I take the element of surprise. Yeah. Do you think I'm going to come into the boys' room and try and act like a boy? No, I'm no. bright pink all the time, long hair, big hoop earrings. Yeah. That's where I am. And I'm perfectly Absolutely. qualified how I yes, am. Yes, exactly. Mm. And I think that's also key, you know, Tilly, so you're saying authenticity. You've got to find, find who you are and go with it you know and not everybody's going to like it but then they'll find somebody else Mm. you know we can't be everything to everyone all the time I think the best thing we can be is true to ourselves and you'll find that people are attracted to that for sure vibe attracts your tribe yeah well it's true though you know and it's the same so what what I'm doing you know I don't want to market myself to people that I'm not going to resonate with Mm. why would I do that why would I try and force people to do, you know, I want to work with people with whom my work resonates. 
I'm not going to try and convince people otherwise because you never will. There's no point. Yeah. So, I mean, just, yeah, I think authenticity is very, is, is key. Okay. We're going to move past authenticity. <laughs> Back to that strength-based approach. Yeah. Do you want to tell everybody what it is that you're doing at the moment? Yeah. So I have a company and it's called Odyssey. Um, and it was um, chosen because, you know, I think everybody you know life is a journey and all of those things and this was my journey and it just seemed like an apt name um for what I'm wanting to do and mine what I focus on is social and emotional development um for at this point young children and young adolescents and emerging adults um adopting a strength-based approach so gone are the days where we developed social and emotional skills just by default you know we don't have the community anymore to um, model behaviors on because our, our, we're so diverse so everybody has different um, and, and parents seem to have absolved themselves of the responsibility of um, you know developing social and emotional skills expecting schools to do it schools are falling short because they're trying to teach the curriculum so who is actually helping children learn these social and emotional skills um and i find everywhere i've been uk south africa hong kong the biggest issues for schools are social and emotional issues um lack of social and emotional skills for the privileged i think lack of empathy is one of the biggest that i've noticed no through no fault of the children themselves and I'll go on to that. And then for those uh, disadvantaged children is the lack of self-regulation quite often. I know I'm generalizing, so mm. just but but just this is what my... So I think, so mine is a strength-based approach. Um, so where people identify their strengths and with... So obviously you've got to start with self-awareness. So self-awareness and then once they've identified their strengths, they can use those strengths in their own self-regulation, empathy development, motivation, and social skills. So that's kind of what I do. So I develop, um, a fr- I have a framework, and then I'll work with schools to help them um, develop a program that fits with their particular ethos, so to speak. Has it been scary starting that business up? Um, yes and no. You know, you've got to be a little bit sort of, shameless and sort of contact people and say hello this is who I am uh, are you interested um, I've identified schools where I know that they have put an emphasis or are interested in social and emotional development um, and again I refer to you know the fact that I am now Dr. G.D. Blaine people seem to listen a little bit more than they did before um, even though I've been saying the same things for all these years but so be it um, and yes it is scary but I, again, I'm coming from quite a privileged position in that I don't feel that I need to make money very quickly um, now, uh, fortunately. But I, for me, I want to, it's more, it's not a money-making thing. I really see the need and I want to make a difference. I want to help. I want to, you know, especially now with COVID and stuff, these skills are so important. There are so many kids like especially little littleies who are growing up in COVID who I've spoken to a couple of mom's friends who have little ones and like the kids are scared to be around other people now. Mm. 
Like this is going to take ages to get rid of. And this is something that I I've actually wrote an article that I, um, I'll, I'll send it to you on this. And you know the playgrounds are closed and the everything's closed. How are these children meant to learn their social? How are they meant to develop? You know, Sarah and all the children actually we were just walking past that playground in Stanley. I mean that's where they learnt a lot of their skills. You know, patience, kindness. Um, resilience you know all of these things with other children and you can't you can't you can't develop social and emotional skills in isolation it's just one of those things and I think unfortunately with COVID is that they're so busy looking after the humans that they've lost humanity in the process and that's worries me it's quite an interesting perspective Mm. really worries me Mm. you think of I, you know, and I, I'm I'm an optimist. Um, I, I've always been optimistic about most things, but I'm very concerned about this generation and the development of their social and emotional skills. I really am. I my biggest concern also is for, for is the loss of hope. I think you know, and that scares me. A lot, and I don't mean to be doomsday at all. I think that this generation will either will a lot will come out f- much more resilient, as long as they don't lose hope, and it's to try and keep that hope alive. That their future is not that uncertain, that it will this too shall pass. Yeah, with changes, but it will pass. It will pass. Nothing's permanent. No, Touch and that's it. what we've got to. Yeah, you know, I think we had it, our generation, and can understand why everyone's, I'm not a boomer, by the way, but uh, we can see why people are pissed off with boomers, you know? It's it's like we've just taken everything for granted and capitalized capitalism and greed and all of this. And it's come at a cost. It's come at a cost. And I can, you know, but I'm just, I've just plead with the younger generation, don't lose hope. I have huge hope in you guys, huge hope. I believe that you are going to make the world a better place. That's what I believe. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Starting with everybody hearing your beautiful story. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I have great hope for this generation. I'm I'm, I'm astounded by, uh, you know, you guys, you know, my children, their friends, what you do, how you deal with it the way you challenge things, the way you don't accept, you know, things lying down. We did. We did. And I mean, whether it was me coming from South Africa, you know, but challenge things, you know, don't accept it at face value. And I love that about you. I love that about your generation. And I have great hope for you. Mm. I think people need to hear that. Mm. But I think also that being said, you said nothing's permanent and times won't necessarily be so uncertain but even if times were certain like I think it's okay either way and I think like you said earlier we just have to roll with the punches yeah no absolutely and And I think what I mean by uncertainty I mean nothing is permanent and of course you know but I think there's no end in sight Mm -hmm. at this point and that I think is what scares people but no there isn't anything certain and I think (laughs) this I just laugh because the fact that we thought at any point of our lives we had any element of control is laughable. I mean, really, really? If you, I mean, my life on a micro and macro level, if you'd asked me 
if I'd been in this position two years ago, I would have laughed at you, you know? And then for us on a micro level, 2019 was such a crap year. And we were like, yes, bring on 2020. We cannot wait. 2020 is going to be our year. And then what happened? So you got to laugh because the fact that we have, you know, and we just got to go with it. You know, we're not that important. I know. We really aren't in the scheme of things. We just got to enjoy it. Enjoy the journey, the odyssey. On that note, just going with things and enjoying things and being, like you said, a participant, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not trying your best in things. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I think for me, one of the loveliest things that I said is let's try and leave this world in a better place Mm. than we entered it. And I think if we could all live like that, that would be good. So, of course, we've got to try and not just take, take. We've got to give back. It's now we've got to give back and leave this world in a better place. I think so. Mm. I think that's a pretty beautiful way to sum up this whole yeah. <laughs> this whole yeah. conversation. Mm. Is no, there well, any final parting words you'd like no. to share? <laughs> no, this has been lovely chatting. It really has. What is something really? that you'd take out of this? Or are you going to follow any of your own vice a little bit more? Yeah, always. I always try and follow my own advice. Um, sometimes <laughs> Extraordinary. I'm sort of <laughs> sometimes I'm better at following it than others. No, but it has. It's made me think, you know, definitely made me really stop and think, who am I? Um, one of the things that, you know, you said, which resonated hugely is like, what advice would you give your children? And I think that's, yeah, made me think. I think you've had a few wonderful tips. Be kind. Yeah. Express your shame. Don't dwell on it. I think on my gravestone, what I'm going to have is above all else, be kind. I think so. That's what I'd like to live by. I have a friend that I met in uni who I'm hoping will come speak to me on this. But she's like, if I'm going to die tomorrow, I just want people to tell other people that I was kind. Yeah. And she really lives and breathes that. And it's Mm. pretty amazing. Mm. I think that that's very true. We all need a lot more kindness in this world. I think so. Mm. We be are kind. all be kind. Yeah. But thank you, Tilly. That was very so lovely that you asked now, me to be on this. Where can people find you? Where can they find the Odyssey business? Do you so, want to share? Yeah, I mean, um, za is where you can find me. .za. Yeah. So I've registered in South Africa. Ah, okay. Um, that's where the domain name is. Or actually even, what's the other one? .hk. www.odyssey.hk will also link it to... And who would your services best be for? Um, adolescents, um, primarily, and young adults. Um, I, I do individual work as well as group work. Again, you know, social and emotional skills are not developed in isolation. So I think it's, you know, group work works quite well. Um, yeah, school teachers, educators, outdoor adventure education providers. You could add a link to this. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to have to have you back because I'm remembering so many things now okay, that I well, wanted to ask you. With pleasure. Okay. With pleasure. Anytime. It was really great. And all the best for the podcast. I think yes. it's a great idea. Yay. And thank you for being so open and honest. I yeah. think it's going to help. Okay. Help me. Be vulnerable. I think so. Important. Be <laughs> yeah. kind to everybody. Be kind. See you guys. Bye.